To the Mary Mac Show, where we will be talking about your feelings, experiences, and pain following the death of a loved one. my warriors. This is Mary Mack from the Mary Mack Show. I am doing a series right now called Death by Fentanyl. And this is a major, major problem in the United States specifically with drug lords from the South bringing these pills and these granules into the United States with the intention of killing our young people, and even our young adults and adults. It can be laced in other drugs. It can be completely and 100% pill of fentanyl that kills. And unfortunately, it's being sold on different social media sites and people don't know what they're getting. These children think they're getting a mild pain reliever and it winds up to kill them instantly. So with me today is one remarkable dad. His name is Michael Gray. And his daughter, Amanda, was killed from one pill of fentanyl. She thought she was taking something else to relieve her mental anxiety and pill, excuse me, and um, her suffering. And she was 25. She died in January of 2018. And Michael has gone on to do incredible advocacy in an organization called Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. And I will leave all that information in the show notes. But today, we're going to talk about Amanda. And we're going to take our time today to talk about grief and how this affects bereaved parents, especially a bereaved dad. And he is also created the Actus Foundation to honor her. So Michael, I want to thank you for being here today. I'm so grateful that you agreed to be with me. And I'd love for you to tell us about your family, your uh, Amanda's growing up years, and how this all came together. Well, thanks. It's really, really great to be here, Mary. And, and I'm just so blessed to have met you. And uh, and to be able to share our story this way. And uh, 
just so the folks know, when you first asked me to come on and you wanted to talk about my daughter and my experience and then get into my advocacy work, I said to you, it's very difficult to do both because they're so much different. I've learned so much about grief and I've done so much work with bereaved parents that's completely separate from trying to stop this one form of death among the young people. And so uh, we decided to kind of let this evolve into those two conversations. So we're here today to talk about my grief and what I've learned about grief and what I've tried to do to help some other parents who are going through that grief. Um, I don't have anywhere near the level of expertise on this side as I do on the advocacy side. We'll talk next time about my professional background and how it prepared me to get into that work. But here it's just 100% baptism by fire and experience. And, and, and what I can do and often do is share my own experience with others so that they can see some sort of path through this uh, nightmare called bereaved parenting. So I thank you again for giving me the chance to talk about it. I don't get to talk about my grief very often um, because what I do in my, in, my, uh, in my advocacy life is I avoid talking about Amanda, not because I can't handle it or don't want to, but because it, it, her case is very, very complicated. And in that sense, I'm trying to get things done. So I'm trying to keep things as simple and clear as possible. My daughter's case is very, very complicated. It was a complicated situation and people won't relate to it. And on the advocacy side, I need people to relate to it. I need, because what's happening more and more is the kids dying are more and more kids that look like everybody else's kids. We've evolved from where it was people who were deep into addiction on average eight years into addiction when they died of overdose and what I call old paradigm overdose to kids who have never done a drug before in their life and at the first experimental time are killed. These are very different characters. One's not better than the other. One doesn't deserve more attention than the other, but they are very different. And if I go to a group of parents who don't have the addiction problem in their family, they're not gonna to relate to the problem until I tell them what it's really looking like today, much more like their family. It's kids like that being killed. You don't get the eight years of opportunity to cure the addiction disease. And so my daughter's case is sort of a, a third a third kind of problem, which is all very complicated in, in a mental health disorder. So I tend not to talk about it when I'm talking my advocacy. So it's a beautiful opportunity for me to express all of that and to talk about her, about my grief with her, and the fact that in this conversation, fentanyl is just by chance how she passed away. And it, it's not really what, what's at the, at the root of our conversation today. So with that said, I'd like to talk, if you don't, if it's okay, I'd like to talk a little bit about her disorder itself and how it evolved and how we lived Absolutely. with that. Life was like with her in our family and, and then how that has affected us in the aftermath um, and what we've learned about it. And as I go through, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight certain uh, uh, people and things I've done <laughs> that I think we were graced with a lot of great solutions and hopefully they'll be there for other people. Uh, who experience the same thing. I work a lot in bereaved parent. And when I talk about my grief and the bereaved side today, it is not limited to kids who died by drugs. One of the things you'll find if you come to any of these group meetings, we do the Compassionate Friends, which is a national organization uh, and has chapter meetings for bereaved parents. And the first thing you'll notice is it's not a six week program or an eight week program or a 10 week program. When we would go to a Compassionate Friends meeting, the first thing you'll notice about bereaved parenting, the first difference that'll hit you is that there are 50 families sitting in that room and they are a perfect linear distribution 
from the two or three couples who just lost somebody this month and are joining the group to Elaine Stilwell, our founder, who 35 years, 36 years ago now, lost her two children in a car accident. And everyone in between, five years, eight years, 10 years, 15 years, 17, 22, 25, 27, 30 years. The first thing you realize is this is a lifelong journey. It never stops. You don't grieve through a process and come out. It's with you for life. So this is interesting. The bereaved parent is a very unique character in that we live with a grief permanently, but we have to live in the world. Most people don't have to live in the world in their grief. When you lose a loved one who's not your child, you, you grieve that person, you grieve that process, and then you move out of that grief and then rejoin the world as a non-grieving person. The bereaved parent is a grieving person perennially, perennially. So we have to go into the world and live as normal while suffering grief. It makes us a unique, a unique character. And what we'd see in these, in, the, in these groups and these meetings is we'd see that future for us, right? We'd see what this is going to mean. So when I do work in that bereaved parent side, one of the first things is it doesn't matter how your kid died. There are no good and bad deaths. When a child dies, it's just a child died. I lost my child. My child passed away. It doesn't matter if it was a kidney disease, a car accident, a gunshot accident, or a drug fatality. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah. It's all the same. So when we see that and we see what's common in our grief, right? And we see how we process through that grief. As I said, we think there's something in that grief. We think there's something about our life in that grief. And let me just lay it out there. I am a devout Catholic Christian person. I believe in God. I accept Jesus Christ. I believe I'm going to heaven. I believe my daughter is in her eternal state right now. That's what I believe. So I, I, when I speak to people about grief, it's almost impossible to speak to someone who doesn't have any belief in afterlife because that person is living with the tortured thought that their child is just buried in the ground, turning to dust and has no meaning, but the few chemicals that will return to the environment. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to talk to that. I, I, I don't know how to talk to that. I, I'm not sure what that person does. But when we have some belief in an afterlife, they don't have to be Catholic, they don't have to be Christian, just some belief that there's something more to this, that's what you hold on to. And if we believe that there's something more to this, then that's something that's out there wants us to find a way through, right? Wants us to find what's there in this. And that's, that's what we're here for, I believe. I believe that all suffering, and this is something the Catholic Church understands very, very well, and we talk to very well, all suffering is redemptive. I believe that all suffering has meaning to all of us. My suffering helps you. Your suffering helps another. Because Jesus' suffering is the center of it. That's what we believe as Christians, right? But just in a general sense, I mean, I could look at Buddhists who talk about the world starts in pain and suffering. Suffering is, is fundamental to the human condition. So as we suffer through these things, they have meaning. And we're trying to find that meaning. And that's what we do in our grief, right? So that's kind of how I come to this. And so, Amanda... She was 24 years old, January 11th, 2018, 6, 19 p.m. I got the phone call. I got a phone call. Not everybody gets a phone call. There are people who had to deal with the horror of finding their child. I, we had one of our bereaved uh, parents in our, in our group who found their child hanging in a base from a basement rafter. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine coming home to your child hanging, 15 years old. Imagine. And it wasn't a suicide. It was an accident. 
they have this thing called the uh, choking game where the kids put a hang themselves on a YouTube video and then save themselves the last minute. The kid couldn't get off and he got himself killed. See that? Oh my God. Hold to this. I've met, I have hundreds of painful stories of this, right? Yes. To have a woman say to me that there was a great grace that she got because her son who was hit by a train and killed hit the side of the train and bounced off. So his body was still in a condition that could be put into an open casket. That's what she took as her great consolation. Wow. If that's your consolation in life, that my child's body wasn't mutilated such that they couldn't have an open casket. This is what we deal with again and again. So these are hard stories to hear. They're hard stories to live with. I got the phone call. The interesting dynamic about getting the phone call is for, I don't know, the first two or three hours, I, I had no reaction because I knew it was a mistake. I knew it was a mistake. There's no possible way my 24-year-old daughter's dead. So somebody made a mistake and they're going to call me back in an hour and say, no, 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 it wasn't her. It was somebody else. You live in that for three hours. And then somewhere your mind starts to synthesize what happened. And all of it, it takes hours and hours to come to that realization. For the first few hours, it's like nothing happened. You're just like, ah, no, it's a mistake. It's amazing. And then the reality starts to come, right? Where There's was she a, at the time when she died? So she had just come out of a psychiatric facility in Connecticut. She was doing what was called an outpatient, um, what, the, what they call an IOP, right? Intensive outpatient program where she lives outside the hospital and then goes for all day therapy in the hospital during the day. She was doing something called dialectical behavior therapy, DBT. And uh, this is the only therapy that shows any promise for her disorder, which was until the, the development of DBT by this brilliant woman in University of Washington, Marsha Linehan, until, until dear Dr. Linehan uh, developed this DBT, there was no hope for, for Amanda's case, which is a borderline personality disorder. It was a hopeless, untreatable disorder. It's horrible. About a 50% death rate, they tell me. Mm. So uh, she had this disorder and for years we battled with it. And I can go, I'll go back through some of that. But at, at the time, she had just found this therapy at, a, at this facility up in Connecticut and it, and it, and it was showed great promise. And she really seemed better at that point than I had seen her in about five years. If anybody who's grown up with somebody with a severe psychiatric disorder, there's a fairly consistent pattern to it. It's at least in the case of somebody with deep, with um, with a borderline personality disorder, which has its own unique characteristics, right? And just so everybody knows, borderline personality disorder, this is the problem of mental health in America. We just don't have enough focus on enough understanding of it. When we were given the diagnosis when she was 16 years old, I heard the word borderline. Uh, okay. Sounds that's not that bad. Borderline, right? It's kind of what terrible thing can be called borderline, right? Yes. No, seriously. No. And, and my psychiatrist, my psychiatrist tells me how many people tried to change that phrase over the years because the psychiatric community knew how devastating it was that people would hear that word and think it's not that bad. When in reality, do you know what borderline refers to? The word border in that is that it's the disorder that moves between neuroses and psychoses. 
They can't pin it down as a neurotic or psychotic disorder. So it lives on the border of the two and it expresses psychotic symptoms and expresses neurotic symptoms, which most disorders don't do. So it's a borderline disorder, borderline of two terrible disorders, not borderline of bad or good. It's very bad. It's horribly bad. It could be the worst psychiatric uh, uh, diagnosis you could get because there was no treatment. And we saw the psychotic side and the neurotic side. We saw it. We lived it. It was terrible. But anyway, she came out of this hospital and she looked better than she looked in five years. And I was going back to how this develops. When Amanda was two years old, she was an extraordinary child, super intelligent develop unbelievably fast, her walking and talking way before the averages, right? Super high IQ, super smart girl. By the time she was seven or eight, she was running every group she was in. She was the kid everybody had to follow and be friends with. She was just charismatic through the roof. And anybody who knew her, who hears me saying this, would support, I mean, the most one of the most charismatic people. I've never met Bill Clinton. They tell me he was way up that scale, I, but, but, you know, for instance. But this, this, yeah, was way up the scale. Charisma. By seven or eight, you said she's going to be praised the United States. Just get out of her way. Right? <laughs> and this is not unusual. About 13 years old, something started going wrong. 13 is the great demarcation, right? Your brain goes through more changes in that year than, if I'm not mistaken, your whole life combined or certainly more than any other point in your life. And all those synaptic pathways that are being created and etched, if you've got a disorder in there, that's when things go haywire, right? Or start to go haywire. And so our daughter, who was like the perfect, I mean, good, who knows what she was going to become. I mean, there was no limit to what she thought we thought she could be all of a sudden at 13 those things started to look funny all her intensity turned a little dark right turned a little strange all of her friendships started to shift a bit she started to shift in who she was friends with and how those relationships went Two or three years later, by 16, she was so distressed by how she felt that she took herself to a psychologist My in our town, unbeknownst to us, and came home one day and said to us, I saw this psychologist for a consultation. He thinks he can help me. I'd like to start therapy. Okay. A year later or something, six months, whatever it was, it was a year she comes home and says to us, so he's given me a diagnosis. He thinks I have borderline personality disorder. And um, we said, oh, okay, what do we do now? Well, I'm gonna continue the therapy, whatever. So by about 17, she's now got a diagnosis. We have had four years of high school that was just beyond crazy. I mean, the things that went on when she was in high school, it was just crazy things, just, 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 yeah, these were psychotic. This was a child with a, the beginnings of a psychotic disorder in an American high school. You can imagine. Just, just imagine. It's horrible. So we get her to actually graduate high school, which was no easy task. 
when she decided she wants to go to college, I was never thinking about college. I thought, how is she ever going to go away? I was going to go to college. I mean, she's, an un she's pretty unstable. Nope, she's going to go to college. Well, this is a fairly typical pattern of mental illness. You know, a person has a lot of great qualities, which later will become clinical. And then at 13, they start looking odd. By 15, 16, they get difficult. And then they go away to college. And the wheels come off the bus. Her experience in college was insane. She started partying like crazy, getting arrested, getting into fight. I, I mean, I, I mean, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, just crazy. It's the only word I can think of. Constantly in trouble, constantly having problems. Constantly in the hospitals. The, the school had a policy that if you were, if you were seen inebriated, they sent you, it was kind of a joke for the kids in the college. They would send you to the emergency room as some liability protection. So, you know, be 60 of these kids carted off to the emergency room every night, you know, off the campus. And she did that route so many times. And then she'd get into fights with people. She was arrested for, you know, public, you know, disorderly behavior. And we wouldn't know some of this for years later. I mean, her friends would tell us later. Her friends realized they saw it. And, and she had, even, even her friendships were very interesting. One of, in the aftermath, we're very close with a lot of her friends. Um, and in the aftermath of her death, it was like I became this confessor and I would sit and hear the friends bring to me their guilt moment because you couldn't be close to Amanda without a bad time because she was psychotic. And she would turn on you for some reason nobody would ever understand. And so every one of her friends had that time when they turned her out because she was just too crazy. And after she died, they all realized at the root of it, and there was one or two who were actually still estranged from her at the time. And I, I feel for them. I feel for living through that. I, it's not their fault. We try to tell them a hundred times, this is a very sick person. But one by one, the friends had a common share of their experience with us. Because you couldn't be a perfect friend with her. Because somewhere she was going to go off the rails to the point where you would give up on and then borderline people have severe reaction to anything even smelling of abandonment. You don't answer their call that one time and it, it, it could lead her into a complete psychotic breakdown, right? So a lot of, a lot of times the stories were funny. I mean, I tell you the stories, they were, they were sort of comical in nature, but, um, but the sickness behind them was really sad. And then when you saw it in its full context. So the first time we got to see it in its full bloom was she had come home for Christmas and it was a particularly bad visit. She was really sick. This was about a year before she passed. She was really sick. And um, I think she had come home because, and we would find out that a big part of being home was she was on Thorazine and she didn't like Thorazine. She wanted Xanax or Clonopin, so she manipulated our our family GP and taking her off Thorazine and put her on Clonopin and you know, that's what she wanted and you know that kind of thing and 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 and, and it was a, it was a prescription I mean she had every legitimate reason to have Clonopin she had severe anxiety and so it was okay but you know it's just like that's how she would do things like the psychiatrist wanted her on Thorazine so she just went to the other doctor and you know this is what she would do so it was a particularly rough visit because you know she was being a bit manipulative 
And when we dropped her off at the airport to go back home, she had to go back home the day before New Year's Eve because she was a, a, a she was a hostess in a, in, a, in a restaurant. And so New Year's Eve was a big night, so she had to be home New Year's Eve. So the night before, we took her to JFK Airport, and it was massive rain. I mean, just storm, storm, horrible storm. And I knew leaving her in the airport by herself was not a very good idea. But, you know, these days you can't go through security, what you can do. So about the time our flight should have taken off, I, I said, yes, I haven't heard from Nan. I haven't heard from Amanda yet. I mean, what do you think? And it, I looked up online and I saw the flight was delayed like three hours. And I thought about it. Oh, wow. That's aggravating for anyone. She's now loaded up on Klonopin. And she goes to a bar. Next thing, the Port Authority police are involved. She's being shackled. They're dragging her off. There's a big melee happening at the airport. What set her off? Who knows? Somebody said the wrong thing to her. Who knows? She was in that state. So the next thing, we go to Jamaica Hospital, New York, which is not exactly um, a five-star resort. No. <laughs> in the emergency room at any given time you're going to find a bunch of people in, in handcuffs i mean that's the way it is in that part yeah <laughs> we went in there and what i saw that night the things that my daughter said to the people around her which is horrifying she was like an animal i go to walk into the room and the two Port Authority cops, sweetest young guys you ever saw, nice kids just trying to do the right thing, very young guys and just, just compassionate as the day is long. You know, the, the, the NYPD and the, and, and the, and the transit guys, they, 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 they tend to be really good people. And they said, Mr. Gray, before you go in the room, you have to understand she's shackled in her hands and feet. And it's because she's so out of control there's a law in New York State that if she strikes a hospital worker, it's an automatic felony. And there's nothing we can do to protect her. This girl does not, she's, they said this girl does not belong in this hospital. She does not belong in this place. You need to get her home and get her out of here. And if she hits somebody, she's going to jail. And, that, and there's nothing we can do. So they, they, they chained her with the hands and feet. And they had to put handcuffs on because she broke. They tried to tie her off with cotton restraints and she broke Oh, my goodness. And so I go into this room and hear her screaming and yelling. I mean, just like a caged animal. That began a compulsory uh, commitment by the state of New York for the next, all through the holidays, for the next uh, 20 days, 21 days, whatever that commitment is. Um, they called it 2PC commit, and uh, they commit her, and there's nothing we can do. And I watched her jabbed with Haldol or something in the butt and she fell before me and was crying, daddy, daddy, don't leave me as they carted her away. And, you know, next thing you know, we get a call. She's out in Long Island at Brunswick. Um, yeah, Brunswick and yeah, in Amityville. So the next two weeks, we've been buzzing through the secure facility in Brunswick Hall, seeing her in that facility. And it was told by the doctor there, you know, she's got this borderline. She's probably got a 50% chance of survival. What? Survival, what? Oh yeah, oh, most people die. Die of what? Or die of all manner of things because they have no impulse control and they're, you know, should nobody ever told you that? Uh, no, 
she's had that diagnosis for three or four years. Nobody's ever done. Oh yeah, she's no, she's right, and she's right on the path. So that was when we got the undeniable. Now think about something a minute. I'm a advocacy has become kind of in my blood, and in my real long term advocacy is about this mental health problem because fentanyl didn't kill my daughter. Fentanyl was the accidental means. My daughter died from borderline personality disorder. And she might as well have been suicide. She might as well run over the street, go run over the bus, I mean, whatever. But the, the, the other ways that people, she might as well have, you know, gone into a truck site, tried to uh, become a prostitute and everybody chopped up and left in a ditch someplace. It's all the things that happen to people borderline. In her case, it happened to be that. Why was I given a diagnosis for my 17-year-old daughter that at a 50% survival rate and then told that some guy in an office in Great Neck is going to help treat her and that's that. You imagine, no, I'll give you a comparison. You know what has a figure of survival rate? Ovarian cancer. So my daughter goes into her doctor and he finds something funky on her ovaries and sends her into the city and she goes to Sloan Kettering and they check her out and go, she's got ovarian cancer. Oh, okay. Well, we're, yeah, she can just come here once a week and get a little treatment. Oh, okay. Who does that? Can you imagine what happens when your 17-year-old daughter gets a cancer diagnosis? Can you imagine the team of doctors that would be in the room for the meeting? Can you imagine how the insurance company was there to make sure they could cover everything that was going to happen? My wife would probably get spa treatments. Just, that's the disorder. So now three years, four years, whatever it was later, I would find out what it really was. And it was likely to kill her. And guess what? It did. No preparation. No idea. So that was the beginning of the last year, which was really pretty rough. But interestingly, when she came to that hospital in November, for whatever reason, she went into this psychotic state and turned against it. My turn in the first half, I guess I don't. Never to this day figured out why. There was no basis to it. Just don't want to talk to dad. Don't want to do dad. She goes into Silver Hill for her DBT therapy. And within two days, she's so excited by the introduction of it and what it's going to be. And she kind of sees it. She's brilliantly intelligent, right? So she can see right away how this works. And she knows how she feels. And she sees this potential. So everything's fine. And then she and I. So after two weeks, she wouldn't talk to me. And God bless my wife. Can you imagine this? Her daughter is put into a psychiatric facility in lockdown. And she, she, Amanda says to her something about, when you come up to visit, can you bring me this? And Angela said, uh, I can't come visit you. And she said, why? She said, you won't let your father visit. Uh. <laughs> can you imagine the courage? That's her daughter. I won't come. And it was two days later, she called and said, I really want to see you and dad. Two days my wife lived with that. Imagine. Hero. That must have been so difficult. Most courageous woman I know. So we go to see her that Monday. And it was all good. We came, my mother came with us. We went to lunch up at the cafeteria facilities. We were walking back down to her unit. It was a path that 
went off to her unit and we were all walking together. She and I kind of drifted ahead. Next thing you know, her arm slips in mine and we walked that path and my my wife bumps my mother by the, you know, gives her the elbow and says, look at this. She says, two peas of a pot, those two. <laughs> and we were, right? And it was almost symbolic. That path, it put all the rest behind. And she was on a path. She was literally on a path to recovery. DBT was the answer. And it had the potential. Now, Silver Hill doesn't do it right. Nobody does but Dr. Blanchett. If only I knew then what I knew now, I would have sent her to Washington, whatever it cost. But I didn't know. I heard DBT. I studied it. It looked great to me, too. And she told me how great it was. But they do it wrong. So they kick her out of there after a month. When it, That's the beginning of DBT. Dr. Linehan would say to me, a month? She said, at the end of a month, she said, that's like take, undertaking antibiotics. It's going to come back raging stronger. And then you go into an outpatient and they don't know anything. I mean, they're basically drug rehabs. They don't know anything about anything. So she gets this one month of intense psychiatric treatment. I have to tell you, Mary, it was beautiful. That time we spent Thanksgiving at Silver Hill Hospital and had dinner at the cafeteria and all the people in her unit, of course, she was Amanda. So all the people in the unit was all about Amanda. <laughs> Amanda, everybody had to meet Amanda's parents. You know, the, the great Amanda, her parents are here, right? And it was like the old Amanda. She was hopeful. She was happy. Now, by now, her life had become something of a train wreck. I mean, scattered credits, God knows. I think she died as a maybe a junior class, maybe she made in college or something, but you know, her friendships were all strained. The one thing that was weird in her life was her, she had no capacity to have a normal love life. She had three amorous characters in her life and they were sick, twisted, even bad people. Bad, 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 really bad. And I think that's where she let her disease flourish was in that part of her life. So in the rest of it, she could be kind and compassionate, loving. No one would believe it if I told them the bad people she associated with love life because she was such a, she was such a magnanimous, such a, a generous and such a loving person, capacity for love that no one else had. And so she took all that ugly stuff and left it in one place. Wouldn't even let us in there. So anyway, that last month in the hospital was really great. So she gets out of Silver Hill Hospital and she's hopeful. She's happy. Now, we don't know anything about anything, though, because mental health in America is like is like a, 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 a fog, right? Mm -hmm. as I, I, and I there's no treatment, and there hasn't been no. any treatment. No, no, all the insurance companies gave up on even their 50% allowance. Right. So the only thing they pay for now is drug rehab. So what do you do if you want psychiatric treatment? You go into a drug rehab. I mean, and I've got... And, and with all due respect, I mean, these people care a lot, but I've got some young girl of 23 with a sociology undergraduate and a, and a counseling certificate treating my severely psychiatric diseased daughter who needs like PhDs and PsyDs and MDs. And, and I've got, you know, the girl with her sociology degree and counseling certificate. I mean, she manipulated them. She, she, she worked those people like toys, right? Anyway, 
When you get a medical treatment like ovarian cancer, one of the analogies I use, it's like you walk into Cancerville. Yeah. Cancerville is this beautiful town of very linear, organized streets and a perfect checkerboard grid, lights everywhere, signs where you have to go, people to help you, right? You go to the same fatality rate mental disorder and it's black and and foggy and you can't see anything and you're up to your waist in water trying to move around you have no idea so she comes out of this hospital and we send her to an iop we'd find out later it's a drug That's all. by the way my daughter never showed any addictive behaviors to anything anywhere okay this is not part of the problem I, I, the last thing i need is a drug rehab Right. And that's the problem. Drug rehabs like to say that they are counseling centers. No, they're not. Because they have a bunch of people with counseling certificates and an MD who shows up every six weeks and writes prescriptions for people. And if that's you're a lucky. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Okay. So she goes to this place. She gets an apartment out in Pennsylvania and she goes to hospital every day. Now, I'll tell you how this happened. She died on a Thursday, January 11, 2018. On Wednesday, she calls me and she says, I just met with a psychiatrist. She's now three weeks out of Silver Hill and in this IOP living in an So the psychiatrist for the first time today, I guess she had a flu and she missed the first appointment. So now she's three weeks to see the psychiatrist. I saw the psychiatrist and she calls me up in a panic. And she says, I can't understand anything he says. I don't know if he even speaks English, but if he does, it's very broken. I can't understand what he says. He's taking all of my meds away that I took all through Silver Hill and I've taken since October. And, he, and I'm trying to beg and tell him I'm stable for the first time in like five years. And he's changing all the meds. He doesn't like any of the meds. Why is he doing that? I don't know. I can't understand what he's saying. And I'm out of meds because the appointment went late. I'm out of everything. And as a side note to this, Amanda had figured out a very simple way of dealing with her disorder. There was a pattern that started to show. Even we saw it over time. She would have, and that's why for years I fought with the psychiatrist and told him she had bipolar. And, you know, here I'm trying to, Mr. Know Nothing, trying to argue with psychiatrists. Uh, about what's wrong with my daughter. But what I kept saying was, but it looks like bipolar. She goes into these events, but it looks like this rapid cycling bipolar. And then finally, this guy said to me, he goes, do you have any idea what you're talking about? Rapid cycling bipolar is like four times a year as opposed to two. She's cycling every two weeks. That's not bipolar. There's no such thing as a rapid cycle of two weeks in bipolar. It's, it, this, is, this is classical borderline personality disorder. Okay. And I didn't want to admit that because I wasn't sure that any treatments would work. So I was mm -hmm. trying to be, I was in denial about what was actually wrong with her. I was still voting for that border, that bipolar, because I see these bipolar people who are like, I don't know, you know, running corporations and stuff because they got good meds. But they, they, he finally blew the whole thing up for me. And he said, Mr. Gray, he said, rapid cycling bipolar is four times a year. She's cycling every two weeks. But what would happen is, well, she might cycle too, because there was about a six-week cycle where she would go really into like serious psychosis. And we started to see that pattern. By the time we saw it, she would have already cal you know, calculated it. 
So what she would do is that's why she wanted a clonopin prescription. So what she would do is, and we saw her doing this, she would feel these manic states coming. And it was always manic with her. These states were crazy manic. Who knew what she was going to do, right? My wife, you remember I told you the woman who said it was a blessing that the poor kid hit the side of the train as opposed to being obliterated under the train so she got home. My wife's great consolation is she saw my daughter's body and buried it because she was convinced she was going to be one of those TV shows of the girl that just disappears and ends up chopped up in the ditch and you never find her. She was so thankful that by the time her daughter died, she actually died in a way that she could see her, touch her, and put her body to rest, that she couldn't consider herself lucky. That's how bad this is. So she would go in this every six weeks or so, and she would load up clonopin to cap it. And she would just basically blast herself for three or four days. Get through, because the manic state asked maybe two days. That's a day, two. That was it. And then she would come out the backside. I used to say she was like the wolfman, the old wolfman movie where he locks himself in a cage when the full moon's coming, right? To, to protect the world from himself. And that was kind of what Amanda would do. She would see that full moon coming. She would feel that that shift coming and she would just load up the clonopin. Okay? Wow. Clonopin is what he took for her. And she had none left. That's what she went to the streets for. Because some incompetent psychiatrist who knew nothing about her, knew nothing about her history, and knew nothing about her reaction to any meds, came in and just decided to just change. Because that's what goes on in the world of psychiatry. In yes. the world of medicine, if some doctor saw a cancer patient having a good medical response for the last six weeks and then said, nah, you know what, I don't like that, I'm just going to change to this drug. 20 of doctors would team tackle. do that, yeah. No, take her clonopin. So here's where I should have known in retrospect. I talked to her. She calls me up in this panic last night. When Amanda's in a panic and a manic mood is coming, wait for the police. The police go, she's going to be arrested. So I said to her, Amanda, don't worry. Calm down. I'll come out tomorrow and pick you up. I will take you place to place to place, hospitals, emergency rooms, whatever, until you get the right meds. And I kept saying to her, this went on for months before that too. You can't just go around to these psychiatrists in these facilities. They're incompetent people. That's why they're in those facilities. We have the best psychiatrists in the world here in New York. The guy that I see now is like, is like a genius, okay? Come home for the psychiatry. It's only every three weeks. Be a competent person for that and go deal with whatever counselors you want to for your day-to-day -day therapy. And she kept pushing because she didn't want to come home. She didn't want to come home. She didn't want to come home. So that Wednesday night, she was in a panic. And she said, the doctor took her clonopin, and this and that next. And I said, don't worry, I'll come tomorrow again. Okay, dad. That sounds like a plan. And in retrospect, I should have realized that Amanda coming into a manic state does not ever say a reasonable thing like, Okay, Dad, that's a good plan. That's just not in the not in the uh, in the vernacular, right? Of psychotic Amanda. So that would be my indication that whatever she bought, she had already bought. Uh. So four o'clock the next morning, I get a text from her. 
I usually my office at four. I, I'm an early morning person. I, I so I'm in the office about four, four fifteen. I get a text from her, and this is a problem. Amanda had a severe, severe insomnia problem. The poor kid never slept. Whenever she was home, I mean, she would sleep two, three hours a day. And so when I saw the message at four o'clock, I said, "Oh no, she's probably been up all night, right?" But the message wasn't bad. It said, you know, I was really thinking about this. And why am I here in this stupid IOP? Why don't I just get a job and do therapy with the therapist that we choose? And I said, all that's well and good, but would you ever consider coming home at least for psychiatry? And she said, yes, ask mom to get the list of doctors in the area. Wow. The last thing she ever said to me on Wednesday night was the last thing she said signing off was thank you for everything, Daddy. I love. That was the last thing she ever said to me. In the text conversation in the morning, the last thing I ever said to her was I typed out that that is such a great plan. This is what I've been waiting for. You are taking control of your treatment. I am so proud of you. Wow. Aww. Unfortunately, she was a psychotic person. So taking control of her own treatment included taking some drugs she bought on the street last night. And she died 10 minutes after her birthday. Had it not been for this federal problem, whatever she took, whatever she thought she was buying, Lonapin, heroin, whatever it was, she'd be fine. Because they found two small bags. So she had one bit of powder, one pill, whatever, whatever it was. Not enough to kill her. Not to hurt her. And she was on that path. That's why I started the advocacy I started. Because what I realized was we were still seeing all drug death through the paradigm of someone who's long-term into addiction and then one day overdoses. So my first realization was my daughter didn't overdose. Not, no, because not at all. Overdose by definition is the accidental or intentional taking too much of something that's not good for you at that level, actually lethal. So people would say my daughter overdosed, and I'd say, on what? One of them? Wasn't any in there. Heroin? Wasn't any other there. Oh, no, she overdosed in fentanyl. Well, she wasn't trying to dose fentanyl, so how could she overdose? She wasn't attempting to dose fentanyl. She was attempting to dose either clonopin or, or dicetomorphine. I, I don't know which. That's what she was attempting to dose, but because it was fentanyl, which, by the way, is a thousand times more potent than dicetomorphine and 50,000 times more potent than, 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 than uh, Alprazolam. What did she overdose on? If you're going to tell me someone overdosed, you have to tell me what they overdosed on. And if they didn't know they were taking what they overdosed on, that's not overdose. That's called poisoning. Hello. The Tylenol people, 1982. Remember that? Yes, I do. Did they overdose? Did anybody call that overdose? They overdosed on what? Tylenol? Acetaminophen? Two tablets? I don't think so. What they overdosed on on uh, sodium cyanide, which was what was in it? it? Were they trying to dose sodium cyanide? No. 
They took sodium cyanide, which is lethal, thinking they were taking acetaminophen, which is not, and we call that poisoning. My daughter takes what she thinks is clonopin, and it's not, and it's fentanyl, and it kills her, and we go, oh, she overdosed. Mm -hmm. Because anything related to drug is considered overdose, and I know that you advocate for the new paradigm shift, yes. and I completely agree with that, because... I've been saying to people that the days of experimenting with drugs are over, if completely we, over. If we could get what you just said as the tagline for every person in America, the problem would be solved because that's really what it is. Because then we'd roll back to addiction again, right? And addiction has lots of solutions in the, in the hopper and people are doing a lot about it. I went out and I keep saying, I'm not diminishing addiction and overdose death. I'm not saying those people are any lesser than my daughter. I'm just saying those people already have tons of people helping them and tons of resources. We have drug rehabs, 30,000 of them in there, right? Who's helping the kid who takes one pill at one party? What is a new rehab or a new medically assisted treatment doing for the kid who's gonna take one pill at one party experimenting? Nothing, if do something else. That's now become the standard diet. So I started into all that advocacy, right? Because of the way my daughter died. And it and it and, it, and again it, it 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 met with a lot of my professional expertise, but part of the journey. So I tell that whole story of how she actually died. And part of the whole journey, though, became the grief side of things. Right now, I genuinely did the advocacy because I want to help. It's not cathartic for me. It doesn't help with my grief. It doesn't hurt my grief. It's completely business for me. Totally business. Mm -hmm. My grief, what I've done with that, and I don't, a lot of I, I, most of the most of the people I work with on the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition don't even don't even have anything to do with that or know it. Is I talk to these bereaved parents all the time, and why? Twenty four hours after my daughter died. The people from the church came on Friday, on a Thursday, and they were setting up the mass for us, right? And the person who took over, this is a bereavement group at the church that does this. And the person who took command of it, because it was a woman who knew us, that her daughter grew So she wanted to, she commandeered the, the situation with us. And she came to the house for a dear lady. And she said, you know, there's a woman I know whose son died a year ago, almost today. It turned out he died a year ago, the day before Manna. And she's got a really great perspective on, on some of these things. I, would you like to meet her? And I said, I would. So that night, I got a call. 20, a little over 24 hours after Amanda died, I got a call from this woman, Christine Carbia Andriatis, um, who has become like a sister to us. We love her so dearly. What she showed us, nothing more or less than this. And you know, Mary, you've dealt with people like me before and you yourself have the experience. So you, you saw it from the inside and the outside, right? And what do we all share? That immediate aftermath, we don't remember much. No. So much devastating grief and so much shock, right? You just, you just become in this big bubble. Like what's going on? Yeah. Like, it's like- Is it's, this it's, really happening? I don't yeah, think so. I, and so one of them was when I talked to this woman, I have those couple of clear memories, right? And what I remember seeing in her that I would now call and much later learn to call, she said yes. 
And this is what we talked about earlier. When your child dies, you have a choice to make. You can say yes, right? And people would say, well, what are you going to do? You can't say no, you know? It's like, you know, you can't bring her back to life and set the world back the way it was when she's alive. No, but there are lots of ways to say no. Drugs, alcohol, sex, rage, hate, bitterness, anger, right? Yes. Mercy, animosity. There are all kinds of negative things you can do to say, no, I refuse to accept it. Or you can say yes. This is a woman who I now know how to, I know the words to use. What I got from her that night, 24 hours after my died, was she said, yes, I'm seeking that yes. And I shared that with Nancy. Two days, maybe three after Amanda died. By now, our whole family's in our house. And they were there for a month. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. We had 50, 60 people in the house for two weeks. My nephew's family were the last to leave over a month later. Um, wonderful. It was really a support. And uh, we had such great friends. So, So we would we would have this experience, but about two or three days after, everybody was announced, and Nancy and I, she was up in the bedroom lying on the bed. I was just standing there, and you know, I don't remember what we were talking about. I don't even remember the conversation, but she said something that struck me as a as a self-recrimination. Something she did or didn't do with Amanda. She and Amanda had a very, very tough relationship for all of her problems and all the craziness. Amanda and I just sailed through it all like, you know, la la land, right? We just never saw the reality. We just, two things floating her above it all. Where Nancy dealt with all the reality and all the aftermath. She's a hero. Heroic. She carried that whole burden with her daughter hating her most of the time, just raging at her and screaming at her. So she said something along the lines of self-permission, something she should or shouldn't have done. And I said to her, I said, you know, Nance, and it was a grace, it was a grace that moved my heart to say, and I said, Nance, I think there's a big elephant in the room. And it's called blame. I don't think we can get rid of harm. My instincts tell me he ain't gonna go away. But I don't think we have to let him talk. We can silence that elephant. Please, can we promise each other now, two days after she died, we will never blame God. We will never blame each other. We will never blame ourselves. And Lord help us, we'll never blame that child. Five years later, we have stuck to that promise. We've never blamed anyone. You had to see my beautiful wife full of compassion at the sentencing hearing of the girl who got charged with three felony counts in her murder. And all my daughter said to her was, can you please use this day to find a better life for yourself? Wow. That's all Amanda wants for you. She's praying for you. That's what she said at the sentencing hearing. In the victim statement. Yeah. So we lived that promise. She lived that promise. And so we said yes, like Christine said. We learned that. 
then Christine would send us to the compassionate friends who we met Elaine, we met Elaine Stillwell. And what we learned from the compassionate friends was parental grief is permanent. I call it permagrief. It's sort of a play on terms of, of permafrost because it has some similar characteristics in permafrost and the perma model of Seligman, right? And so I call it permagrief. If you look at permafrost, it doesn't look like what we think of frost, snow and you know blizzards and all this stuff. It could be 12 feet of ice below what looks like a normal place. That's our grief as parents. It's permagrief, it's in here, right? It's with me all the time, but up here, I have to look like a normal person because I have to live in the world. I can't grieve forever. Most non-parental grief is a process with a terminus. And I think it's based on the psychological reality that every other person in my life either comes to me with an expectation that they will predecease me, like my parents, my uncles and aunts, my grandparents, or co-decease me where it's arbitrary who dies first, like my siblings, my friends, my wife. Right. The one relationship we have where we have an unconscious, subconscious, instinctual expectation of them surviving us is our children. So the death messes with that order. It does because the parents are not supposed to predecease their children right. at so all. It, and it messes with an order. Right, it does. We're supposed to go first. Right. And then you've got things like guilt. What huh? did I do to cause them to go first? So I started this little thing. It's really become something of a ministry. I, I just try to find people who died, kids who died, and I go to the reporter from the newspaper, whatever. If the parents ever want to talk, I offer my number. It's an interesting little thing I've done. I've probably talked to hundreds now. And the pattern is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. I offer my number, I'm gonna guess something north of 50% asked me to call or call me. Wow, that's a, that's a big percentage. It's north of 50 anyway. But I have to tell you, I mean, that's very um, compassionate alone just to reach out to somebody who's just lost a child because- that's yeah. Yeah. I mean, that takes a lot of strength on your part to even do something like that. That to me is cathartic. I do that for myself too. I do that because it's important for me to know that I'm giving back what Christine gave to us. Yes. Right? Because that's all I'm telling them. I'm not counseling them. I'm not giving them grief counseling. I'm not telling, you know, all I'm telling them is we said yes. And, 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 and there's a meaning in our lives. You know what I say to them? The first thing I always say to everyone on? Okay, I here, first start with the bad news. Happiness, as you knew it before, and the world knows it, the rest of the world knows it, gone, never to come back, gone. You'll never be happy again that way. You'll find joy, fulfillment, happy, happy, like, happy like we feel when you get a new car, gone, never feel again. Unfortunately, no, hey, other people who have five and six kids get to be 70 years old and still feel that happiness when they get a new car. You're never going to feel that. You are going to grieve every single day the rest of your life. You will carry a certain sadness with you every day the rest of your life. How do I know that? I joined the Compassion Friends. I saw what people are like 35 years later. They're normal. They live in the world, but they carry this, right? Now, the third thing I say, though, 
times. If you can say yes, and if you can find that way through, there's a depth of meaning to life that our, I would say our Lord will open to you. Your life can crackle full of meaning. And you can start to see things. This, this therapist that Nancy and I worked with in the early days is really beautiful, wonderful, fantastic woman who we love so much, Rockville Center, New York. She produced a paper called The Hidden Gifts of Grief. And she talks about these grace gems that are in grief if you can just hold on, right? right. And that's whether it's temporary grief or whether it's permanent grief, they're there, right? So I tell the people, We'll go on with a four or five hour conversation, typically. Typically, that's average. Oh, I completely understand that because when um, I was involved with parents of murdered children and we started the um, newest, we run Long Island's chapter, but then we wound up starting the New York City chapter because so many people were driving like 50, 80 miles just to go to the meetings. Yep. And um, I totally, God. I would get on the phone call with a new parent if they weren't close enough by and I'd have a glass of wine sitting there. And it was like a three hour conversation because you had to hear the whole story, you know? Yep. And it's an important part of it. Yeah. But here's what I would do or I do. Here's what I do. When we get through that whole thing. Yes. <laughs> somewhere toward the end, I say, now tell me about your and that's the fascinating part of the conversation. I've had a couple that really truly don't seem to feel guilt. I didn't, I don't, my wife didn't, she doesn't. Some don't, but most do. And here's the only answer I have to that. They explain why it's all their fault. Okay. And then I say, the only thing I can think of with that is maybe it is your fault. I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe it's all your fault. I, I wasn't there. I didn't see what happened. But I do know this. It doesn't matter. The reality is the love that you feel for your child that's kept you on the phone three hours, that's what matters. The only thing that's mattered, where they are now, if you assume they're still alive and if you have that belief, then they're in a state that doesn't understand guilt, blame, bitterness, resentment. They don't. They don't relate to those feelings anymore. Those are human feelings born of sin. It's, you know, it's sinful self-interest. When you get to that state that you seem to believe your child is in, you don't have the capacity to understand that. Guess what? Your guilt, the only thing it's doing is preventing your child from communicating to you. It's not doing anything else. It's not helping anybody. So maybe it's all your fault. Go ahead. Say it's all my fault. It doesn't matter. No, it's in history now. And your child doesn't know it's your fault because they don't understand, no longer have any way to relate to the concept of blame. Just love. And the fact that you've been on the phone for three hours says you love them. That's all that matters. True. Right? And so... Then we get off the phone after three, four, five hours. Right. Hear a fascinating statistic. Tell me. No one's ever called me back. Not one. What does that tell you? 
That's all they needed. They just needed to talk to one of us. Yes. And, and, and say, yes, it happened to you and you're still alive. You're still, you're still, you're beyond what I'm, this, this thing I'm feeling now. There's someone out there beyond it who this happened to. Yes, I felt like you when it first happened. And, but I'm here to tell you, honestly, you'll never feel the giddy happiness again that you used to feel. But you'll feel like me and I don't feel like you. You will come to this place. Right? You will, if you say yes. Now I've seen him, I've seen him 10 years later, still drinking and still angry and still hateful. Yeah, and bitter no, and resentful like and resentful, wanting it's, to know why my child, why not? Why my child, why my child? child? Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, in reality, why not? I don't know. Look, I mean, there, 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 are, whole, there are things a whole lot worse the people suffer in this human world of ours, and it isn't me. Well, why? Why is it them? Why is somebody who's tortured to death, you know, kidnapped and then kept in a room for thirty days and tortured and then dead at the end of? Well, why did that happen to them and not me? I don't know. It is what it is. It's the nature of things. It's the order of things. Things happen. There's an arbitrariness to it, as far as we know. You don't know because you're not God, right? You know what you said before? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. You you will never know why that broken record that goes around in your head where you're trying to say, why did this happen? Why wasn't he there? You know, why didn't God stop this? Why was she where she was? Why couldn't we protect her? All those whys um, are never going to be answered until you yourself die. And then you get in the presence of the Lord and you ask him. That's right. What was and, the plan? And, what were you thinking? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I look forward to the day as a person. And as I said, my wife and I both believe our daughter is alive and well. We both believe our daughter has interaction with us, which is all well within the teaching of my Catholic church. There's no reason I doesn't, you know, there's no, there's no dogma on whether or not that happens. So there's no reason we can't believe it happens. And so what we find though, is we're convinced she does talk to us constantly. But it's strange how she talks to us in completely different ways that are satisfactory to our different ways of going into the world. Oh, please tell us a few. So it started at the funeral where my wife, the, the, over the altar at the church, we're from St. Mary's Church, Manhasset, New York, um, on Long Island. And, and, and it's a unique construction, St. Mary's. When they did an extension at one point, the back wall was where the altar is. And so what they did is they moved the altar to the middle and they have pews at either side that face into this open altar that's at the center. And it's, but it's not like a round church. It's just an old time church where everything was toward the back wall, but they moved the altar. So hanging over the altar in a free hang by chains is a huge crucifix with St. John, the evangelist and St. Mary at the foot of the cross. And Nancy looks up and she sees a shimmering light around the Blessed Virgin. Oh, wow. And, and Nancy's a pretty, you know, she's a pretty um, down-to-earth lady. And she's not flighty, right? And so she says, she sort of corrected herself and kind of rubbed her eyes and looked again. And there it was. And it stayed there for several minutes. And then it just faded off, right? And she knew where that was coming from. And every time she would talk about Amanda, you know what she would do unconsciously? 
she would go like this, right where Amanda would have lived, right? Back in the day. And she would talk about Amanda and you would see that she was getting a feeling from her and she would do this, right? All the, all the physical, the touch. Do you know, there's a great article I can, I can send you on it too. One of the things science only fairly recently discovered then it goes all the way back to why our Lord said when he said about his mother and St. John from the cross, right? When he says, behold, thy mother, she became the mother of all. Why? Because she's the mother of God. When a woman gives birth, she retains stem cells of the child. Till the oh, yes. Time. Yes. Even if you lose a child, there are parts of that little one. And they stay alive in you. Yes. They can be they activated when you're sick. Absolutely. Every. Every, I don't think enough people realize that even if you miscarry, those children yes. are still part of who you are. They will always be with you. I and I dare say, I dare say, I've I've been forced into the conversation. My daughter was was a big pro life advocate, big big pro life advocate. She loved babies, and she was big in the pro life movement. She went to a Catholic college and used to go to the march every every January. And so I get drawn into that discussion. One of the um, we 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 support a little chapel in a in a counseling center back in New York, and all. I mean, it's it's wonderful. Uh, Bridge to Life. It's a fantastic organization, and they help girls. They give them, you know, they got a whole place there where they get baby clothes and bottles and everything. Other women who can't afford to have babies, right? So that and Amanda's picture is in the counseling room where they where they actually have the counseling and try to counsel the girl to keep the child, right? And so, uh, yeah, she was big in the pro-life, right? So, um, but I've been drawn through that into conversations with women who were post-abortive. Well, that's a whole scary world, right? A scary, scary world. But that works for them because that baby is still there. That baby is still connected to them. Because when they're post-abortive enough that they're coming for counseling somewhere, you know, that, that means that they've come to understand that that was a child, right? And so, but you still have the connection. And guess what? Guess what? It still doesn't matter. I, what do you say to a post-abortive woman? It was certainly your fault. You chose to do it. You went in for a procedure. That kid doesn't care either. That kid doesn't care any more than all those other people I've talked to. That kid doesn't understand hate or bitterness, resentment. It only knows its mother. And if you can say yes to that death, that's the path to forgiveness in heaven and hope. One of the things I say to people all the time is hope is all you have. Hope is all you ever had. But now that your child died, you know that in a way that you never did before. All I have is my hope in eternal life. I have nothing else. Everything else is nonsense. All the rest evaporates, goes away. The only thing I have is hope. And if you can't find hope, when it's stacked up against your child, you know, uh, uh, de de decomposing into a few stray chemicals in the ground somewhere with no more meaning to the universe than that. If that can't bring you hope of the promise of eternal life, right? So this is what we get to, right? And so in the end, none of those people call me back. And I, I certainly don't think I offend them. I hope not, but I don't think so. I think they don't call me back because that's all they needed. I, I, they probably don't even remember who I am. They probably remember some guy called me and <laughs> that's probably all they can say. Yeah. 
Because I don't call them back. Well, because it's it's so profound. The conversation, that conversation is so profound. And the wisdom that you and I, you know, pour into a newly bereaved parent or a newly bereaved spouse in some cases. Um, it's, it's a gift. I don't care what anybody says. It's a gift. There are not many of us out there who can do that. There are not many of us who can go to a mother in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning who just had her son killed and she's wailing and you're holding her. I don't know any psychologist that goes and does that kind of work. Mary, I've been to 40 funerals. Oh my God. Mostly the young people, right? Right. Mostly fentanyl? No. Okay. All manner. Something happened to me after Amanda's death. Many things happened to all of us after a child dies, right? It's a very profound situation. Yes. But one of the things that happened when I go to a funeral now, I don't feel any sadness. I don't feel anything even remotely or despair. I believe that what I'm bringing into that funeral is a positive energy. Now, I, I'm not smiling or acting happy in any way. Sure. But I'm, I'm bringing a joyful, hopeful energy. I go to a funeral and my perspective is where that person has gone. That's it. And I can't think of anything else. I can't think of anything else. I remember not long after Amanda died, there was a priest uh, who is one of the English speaking priests from Medjugorje who was in Long Island mm -hmm. and giving a talk. And the priest uh, who was friends with him and ran the parish, because he's Croatian, he goes to Medjugorje a lot. And uh, he brought the guy in and he called me and said, this guy's coming, you might want to hear his talk. We were three months after Amanda's death or something, four maybe, probably four or five, because you know there's the three month period where you're not sad or anything. There's, it takes three months before your brain accepts what happened. And I warn everybody, month four, month four, month four, race for it, get ready for it. You're gonna not want to live. And you wanna stop yourself at that path, point of the path before it becomes actual suicide ideation. You're not gonna wanna live at four months. Prepare for it now. Your shock is protecting you at the moment. Yes, you absolutely. Build your strength because month four is gonna come and it's all gonna come home. And it's it's like universal. So anyway, we were probably four or five months. We we're right at that point. And this priest comes from Ejiburia. Father introduced me to him, tells him a quick story. He just lost his daughter a couple months ago. So I'm talking to him. And I start telling him the story as I was want to do in those days. And I got this strange reaction. There was no sympathy. He was, but it wasn't cold. I wasn't feeling he was being cold toward me, but there was no sympathy at all. I could almost sense that he was trying to feign sympathy because he didn't actually have any. 
But I didn't take it as offensive and cold. What I would realize later was this man's faith was so deep and he'd seen so much. I mean, a place like Medjugorje, people are coming and we're filled with despair and desperate. That he knew all about what was with my daughter and he knew there was nothing to feel sad about. And again, it didn't come across as cold and, you know, uncaring. Quite the opposite. He was trying to feign the sympathy because he kind of felt like that's what I needed. But in the end, it was like it was like he had a secret. You know, it's kind of like if I tell you, you got to walk 10 miles to this place. And you got bad shoes on and your feet are going to hurt. And you're going, oh, come on. I go, yeah, got to walk 10 miles to that place. And you start telling everybody that I've made you walk 10 miles, but I know there's a bag of a million dollars of cash sitting at the end of that block. <laughs> right? And that's kind of how he was reacting to me. So then, so you get people like that, but that's a special grace of a man who's an ordained priest. He's a consecrated, it's a totally different, totally different world. But you'll see the people who you can tell when I have those conversations, I can tell something's hitting somewhere, right? And I'm telling you, they probably don't remember the conversation. They really don't, probably in most cases. They mm -hmm. just remember some crazy guy from New York called them and, and said it's all going to be okay. Yes. Right? And then I had a, a, a this one friend who he's very, um, he, he, he's very, he always wants to get involved and help. He, he does a lot of, you know, he's wealthy. So he puts a lot of, you know, he donates to a lot of causes and he really got into it with me. And next thing you know, he jumped into my group, Facebook group and started talking to people. And I would tell him, you can't do that. Because he would take what I said and start to pack it. You can't, as a man who's not a bereaved parent, say to a bereaved parent, this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Like, no. You know, this is this is like disastrous. You got to stop this. Right? You got to leave it to us. Right? We're here for each other. And for me, then the other part of the grief, I tell you, Mary, the, 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 sort of the, the last part of talking through my experience, it's really, really important, I think, is this. And by the way, I'm going to share with you, I'll put up a, I, this Facebook post I did on the third anniversary of Matt's death, where I sort of summarized the first three years and a couple of couple of paragraphs. And there's some good advice there. And I, I actually put the kind of the text of what I typically say to people in these calls when they just lost a child. And one of the things I warned them about, and I've had to have this down and out conversation with my wife a couple of times, my beautiful wife, Nancy, And now I get into a thing that, I don't know, people who haven't lost a child, listen to this, might, I don't know how they'll feel about it, but I am very, I got into the world of bereaved parents and I'm very defensive of us and I'm very protective of us. Mm -hmm. They mean the world to me. And the rest of the world doesn't really understand us. And so, yeah. see, when I go out and I do my talks, I, I, this would be a really good, I'm going to hold that thought for me because that's a really good segue to hold for our conversation about their advocacy, about how I see empathy, right? As a salesman all my life, salesman, sales executive, hiring salesman, training, merit, uh, mentoring salespeople, 
it all comes down to empathy and self-awareness. The only two things that matter in sales. It doesn't matter what else you do. If you're highly empathetic and have high self-awareness, you'll be good in sales. And if you don't, you can't do it. It's just, you know, how you behave doesn't matter. But I'll talk about that, what I, my view of empathy. But, but one of the probably the last observations I would make in our conversation is that one of the great warnings I have to give is what's going to happen in four months? Get ready. Get ready. The first few, when I first started this, I would go in off the phone and I'd say to Nancy, I can't believe how well those people are doing. Like, <laughs> it took me a while to realize there's a three month period of total shock where your unconscious brain is not even begun to accept. So half of your brain is up there telling the other half that didn't happen. Right. And it's again, all it's all that denial, fog, bubble. Denial. Yeah. Total denial. And yeah. it's not it's not chosen denial. It's forced denial by nature because it's too much for your brain. Yeah, it's I believe shock. God does that in per intentionally so that you can get to a point where you can, you know, you can see that this is real, but not yet. If <laughs> Everything I started feeling from month four on through about month 18, I could code this stuff, right? If everything that goes on from month four to month 18 were, re were real to me the day it happened, I'd jump off the first bridge I could find. I'd shoot myself with the first gun I could get my hand on. I'd show all the first bottle of pills I could get, get in my hands, right? Yes, absolutely. So it's a protection, just like physical shock is a protection. If I cut off my hand, my brain stops all pain impulses to that part for a while until I can get my mind around what actually happened to my arm. Right. And it's the same kind of thing. So when I get him in at first, I mean, really, you'd ask my wife, she'll tell you in the beginning when I would do this, I get off the phone, I go, I can't believe the person I can. Then I started to realize, oh, yeah, it's the first three months. Right. But it's good because it's a good time to kind of get seeds in there. Right. So four months is the big warning, but the biggest warning of all is this because it hurts. It really hurts. When you become a brief parent, you become an alien. You become, you become an alien in the world within which you live. And I know something about this because of being a sales executive all my life for uh, tech businesses, so we had a lot of business all around the world. I had expats reporting to me all the time. I knew the expat experience and I had to work with those guys all the time and working out their situation, their deals and everything. I know how an alien in a foreign culture lives and i know what their challenges are it's we are very like that once you lose a child you become like an alien living in an expatriate community you can still have good relationships with everybody there's a still friendliness but there's a fundamental way in which you are just different right and i tell my wife this when my wife would have a couple of really bad events over the years and i'd say to her nancy you do not spend enough time with your own when I had these expats in Singapore, in Taiwan, in Shanghai, wherever, one of the things you always had to include in their package was membership at the American Club. And it's very expensive and it's very posh and you pay a fortune for it, but you got to give it to them. Why? Because they're expats, because they like being in a foreign culture. They like that immersion in another place. So they wouldn't have done it in the first place. But sometimes you just got to watch a football game, hear a, a crass New York or Boston accent and eat a cheeseburger. Yeah. <laughs> got to do it. Right? 
not if you're an expat, you probably don't do that all the time, but sometimes you just got to do it, right? Yes, you have to be with your own kind. And I believe that when you lose a child, you become like an expat in a foreign country to the rest of the world. And sometimes you got to just eat the cheeseburger and, and watch the football game, right? And so that's what I had started to do. And then the other thing you're going to see is how common it is for your entire social network to turn over. And I can quantify this. Here's my theory, just my theory. I have no training in any of this. I'm just telling you my, my experience. When I say that all grief but a child grief is temporary with terminus, well, of course it is, because it's not getting at your natural order of things, right? So the average person loses someone they love and they go into grief. And of course, grief is a two-dimensional thing, right? There's, there's the, the y-axis of how intense the grief is and then the x-axis of how long it lasts. I argue that parental grief is not by definition more intense than any other grief. Theoretically speaking, you could be more intense to griefful over the loss of a pet than someone else may be over the loss of their child, right? If it's a really a strange situation with a child, haven't seen him, don't care about him, don't think about him, as opposed to a very loving situation with a pet. It's not by definition more intense than other grief, which is most people think. It generally is more intense than most other grief, but not by definition. What it is by definition is permanent. That's the distinction. The distinction isn't the intensity of the grief. The extinct, the distinction is the is the length of the grief, which is permanent. Okay. I grieved my father pretty hard, actually. I did. I grieved that pretty hard. I mean, that was a pretty serious grief for me many, many years before Amanda died. I, I don't know on a pure intensity scale that it was that much worse than Amanda died. The difference with Amanda's death and my grief versus my dad is that, and by the way, I knew it. In retrospects, looking back, I knew what the day it happened is that I was a different person, changed forever. I knew that. I knew that that day, and we all say the same thing. When I asked that question, they're all like, yep, you knew it. When looking back, I knew the day that happened that, and, to, and, and I'm only five years out. I don't know if this one fades or not, but to this day, if you tell me a date back in time, I immediately place it before after. Instinctually. Well, yeah, it's like before Amanda died and after yeah. Amanda died. No. And like and I was I'm, saying the other night, it's like there's nothing in between. Now no. it's before and after. That's how your life is. It, it's like a demarcation of, of it's kind of like we use, we used to say, you know, uh, bef, we used to say before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Now we use, uh, what is it, uh, before the common era, the common era, right? But either way, there's this point of history where everything is related to before. That, that's, if you tell me, right. like, the year you graduated high school, it goes into that bifurcation, right? That's the permanence of the grief. Yes. So it's not by definition more intense. It's by definition permanent, as opposed to all other grief, which is not by definition less intense, but by definition, ending, right? And so here's what that means. I kind of thought this through. I'm gonna tell you some a fascinating, that statistic about 60% take my call, goes on three, four hours and they never come. That's pretty interesting, right? This yeah. one's even more. So Amanda dies, we have a funeral, we have thousand people. 
comfortable over the country, all our friends. I mean, we have people in our house coming from California, Georgia, Florida, everywhere, okay? Texas. A year later, we have an anniversary mass for her. And again, we're traditional Catholics, so we have a, a, a traditional Latin requiem mass, uh, anniversario defunctorum, and um, first anniversary of death. About a little over a hundred people show up. Hmm. Yeah, that's probably probably all right. That's a lot, actually. For I think that's a lot. Yes, definitely. So we get about a hundred people. Watch this. I I do this whole thing in the Latin Mass community. Um, I do a lot of like the behind the scenes stuff. I print the guides. I you know do all that stuff, right? And so one of the things I do is I count the people in the church to see how we're doing, how our community is growing, right? It's it's become like an obsession. Like I go to mass and I count people. It's what I do. <laughs> so, because I've been doing it for years with Latin mass, right? So at Amanda's anniversary, I count the people. So the first anniversary, we had like 170. Second anniversary, 109 people. Third anniversary, 102. Fourth anniversary, about the same, 102, Fifth anniversary. That's amazing. Fifth anniversary in the middle of moving. So we weren't going to have the anniversary mass because we were moving here to Florida. And last minute we went to the priest and said, we can't live without the mass. And he did a nice private mass for us. And only my nephew and his wife and his five kids came and us. And that was it, right? Here in Florida. And and we didn't have a casket and the whole thing, and it, 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 which we had been doing it. But I told you, 107, 109, 102, 103, and those four anniversaries, right? Now watch this. I do a further analysis and I go through who's in the church. 107 people, a hundred of them knew us and Amanda before she died. Seven were people who were part of our parish community, which we came to after Amanda died. Okay, second anniversary, I was 109. Like it was like, call it call it a hundred and nine. I forget the exact numbers. Second year, hundred and seven, almost the same thing. The same hundred people, and the same seven or nine people. The third anniversary, it reversed. Hundred and two people. Our hundred people who came the first two was down to about ten, eight. Wow. All the people we knew since. So a lot of your bereaved family came. So yes, but also our new par- the people we knew in the parish and stuff. So here's what here's what I'm here's my statement Ethereum. Since most other grief has a terminus, then people who are compassionate for your grief have an internal clock of how long it should go on. And the less empathetic of them are sitting there three months later going, they're still sad about their daughter. It's been three months. Heck, when my dog How come they're not over it by now? Hey, those are the really low empathetic people bordering on narcissistic, right? Mm, Yeah. And as the empathy goes out, I think all that happens is you just get more time out of those people. And I think two years is the limit for everyone else. Why? Because that's the limit 
I think, of non-parental grief when I say it's non-permanent as a terminus. So what happens is they think of the worst possible death they could ever experience in their life, their mother, their father, their husband, their wife, whatever. And they put that on us and they say, two years is enough. You're never getting out of this. You're stuck in it. You're depressed. You need to get out of it. You need to get up and splash water on your face and go to a party. And I have nothing to do with you anymore because I can't take it. A complete reversal between the second anniversary and the third anniversary. Mm -hmm. Complete reversal. The people who knew us before Amanda died were a hundred and they went to 10 in one year. Now, now, mind you, listen, those same hundred people came the first year and came back the second year. And I guarantee you that all of those 90 people who didn't come back the third year, I guarantee you if I could be a fly on the wall in her house, every one of them was saying, well, I'm not going to that thing again. They're, these people are stuck in it. They're mired in it. They can't get over it. I'm not helping them going to that thing. I'm only keeping it going. Right. Guarantee it. Oh, I agree with you. I think, and the other thing is, everybody wants you to be back to the way you were. And you're never going to be that person again. So and no see, matter how much you try to explain that, like to my family. Um, no, no you're, you're not that you know, person anymore. No, you're you not supposed what? to. You're not as bubbly and happy. And, you know, why aren't you coming to my Christmas Eve party? Well, because I don't want to be around people like that who don't understand me. You know, one of the, the, that's another one of the things I'll say to my wife, like when, when there'll be like, you know, all this stuff about, you know, the, the people around you and, you know, you're not the same person you were. Well, of course I'm not. How could I be? But you know what, Mary, I don't know if the old Michael Gray was a better guy than me or I'm a better guy than him. It's not about that. He's just a different guy. Yeah. He's probably no better or worse because in some sense, it's still the same guy, but but what I'm saying is I'm a completely different person. It's it's not even, I don't even know how to answer the question whether I'm a better person or a worse person. I don't know. I'm just yeah. not the same person. That much I do know, yeah. right? And what here's the other key though, between the two and the three years. I say this to my wife all the time, you've got to be careful in an alien world. Some of them want to eat you. <laughs> Some of them want to be your friends and are really compassionate and care about you. Some of them want to put you in a cauldron, boil it up and eat you. Okay? And you've got to know what you're dealing with. And what are you dealing with is empathy. Okay, so let's talk about empathy. One thing I know about Michael Gray before January 11, 2018 at 6.19 p.m. One thing I know about that guy is being his friend required a certain level of empathy. That was a pretty normal guy. You know, I didn't really rely on too much emotional support from my friends and stuff. I mean, they could be kind of jerks about things and be okay, get over it the next day, whatever. As of January 11, 2018, 6.19 p.m., being my friend now takes this much empathy. So what happens to all these people? They go away. They go flying by the wayside. They're all gone. Yeah, and you know what? It's okay. But when, well, when you're going through it, you're like, where's everybody? Yes. It's very and how come they're not hurts. there for me? Right. And these are people I've known basically all my life. And yes. 
And now, I mean, where is everybody? And they came up to me at the funeral and said, I'm there for you. Uh, And if you you need anything, just call on me, right? Depending on their level of empathy, when they said I'm there for you, it means either for two more months or two more years, but nothing beyond that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And as a result, you know, you're kind of left wondering, like, did those people ever mean anything to me? You know, and you start to reevaluate, you reevaluate all this and, and it's, it's perfectly natural and normal. This is what goes with it. You know, and a lot of people are just so hurt that they lost all these friends, but what needs to be said is let them go. Right. Because if you see them go, when I said, Amanda, Amanda communicates with myself and Nancy differently. I'm a guy who's you know, lived his whole life in the scientific community. That's the way I've made my living. That's what I do. I think in a very rigorous sort of quantitative way. And to me, the answer to that problem is quantify it. They're not bad people. They're just people without enough empathy to be friends of a bereaved parent. They were people with enough empathy to be friends with you before you were a bereaved parent. But everything's different now. And by the way, it's you that changed, not them. They're the same people they always were. But they I just, believe, but I believe that God gives us people in our lives for a certain season. Yes. And when that season is over, you move on to the next season in your life. That's right. And they're That's right. meant to be with you in this season of your life. You know, those other hundred people who came to the thing after the new us app, you know, mm-hmm. those are high empathy people. Everybody who's become my friend since has a very high level empathy right? Because that's what I need. Yeah. You can't be my friend about because Nancy and I are unapologetic. It's rare that a 24 hour period passes without discussion of Amanda. We talk about her as if she's still here with you or without you. And we don't care who's in the room and we ain't going to stop. And we're not going to not talk about her because it makes people uncomfortable. And that's that. And if you don't like it, there's the door. Yeah. So, very simple. Okay. She is my daughter. I love her. I don't love her any less because she's dead. I don't think of her any less because she's dead. And I'm going to talk about her the same as when she's not dead. And I'm sorry if that bothers you, but that's the way it is. And what I'm saying is high empathy people just naturally understand that. And they get into it with us, right? Low empathy people don't. Now, we don't blather on about sad things either. We just, we talk about her in the natural course of our conversation. She's part of our life and is and will be forever, right? Interesting. Also, Nancy was broken up by the 30th birthday. She's her 30th birthday. Right? Uh-huh. I don't know. The birthdays don't mean anything to me because she's 24. And in fact, if anything, I think more of her as a child. You know, so, so, but I think mostly of her as that 24 year old that when she died, but Nancy keeps imagining you know, what time. she will be like at 25, yeah. at 26, at 27. It's just yeah. different. I don't know. No, not, not one is right and one is wrong. It's just a different perspective. Like, so for her, the birthdays, now it's kind of funny. You can almost say she looks forward to the best. Like for her, the birthdays mean a lot. To me, they really don't mean anything to come and to go. To me, the anniversary date is everything. That's the day she had her Yeah. Right? And so it's just kind of a different, and I think it's probably man, woman, and mother, father, right? I mean, yes. I can't, I can't imagine 
the whole physical connection. I can't, can't even imagine. I can't imagine it's like to have a baby. I, mean, I just can't even imagine what that connection is like, right? And so I think some of that is that, like it, for her, it's a, it's a more physical, visceral thing, right? With her daughter. Yeah. But I just think that's the woman perspective, right? Because as you guys have the babies, right? So <laughs> I just think, I think it's kind of the way just we're wired, right? But whatever it is, that's one of the things I noticed too, is like, for me, it's all about the anniversary date for her. It's all about, the, not all about, but it's a lot about the birthday. Interesting. But you know, the empathy thing and all it means about our friends, right? So like I said, when we get into the advocacy part, um, when I do my presentation, when I teach the people in my coalition, so you know it's a coalition, I started the Actus Foundation and I do a lot of work there. I mean, I, I've advised three congressional committees. Um, I've advised the White House, I've advised the governor's office here in Florida. Um, I, I've helped to develop technology for doing, I mean, I've, I've been really involved in all that. And what I teach the people, so, so I have this foundation and the foundation became so spiritual in nature that I felt like a lot of people don't want to do this as a religious thing. So I better find, do something else because I do want to help in that community. And that's why I founded this Fentanyl Awareness Coalition, right? So it's a coalition. We don't do anything specific ourselves. We just bring everybody together and we educate, right? And so one of the things I educate on is how to present this. Now, I think we've done a great thing, largely because of where we said all the narrative has really changed. I think the average American now understands that overdose poisoning thing. I think the average American knows the word fentanyl and that it's not like other drugs. And I think the average American knows that Mexico and China are guilty to their eyeballs in this thing. And that, and, and that there's certain things the federal government should do at that level too. Um, I think many people know that. And that's the narrative we've been pushing for five years now, right? But when I train the people, I talk about empathy because I know a lot about it. And I say, the reason I don't discuss my daughter when I'm talking my advocacy is because her situation, as you heard, is very complicated. Most people can't relate to it. Very few people raise a child like my child was. It's a very unusual situation. My partner in the founding of the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition, Eddie Kobilis, who you need to know here, is the archetype of what we're advocating for. As far as we know, the kid never did any drugs. Nothing. He was kind of, a, he was a real wholesome sort of salt of the earth kid, but a little bit um, timid and shy. And Eddie would tell the story that like he had some acne and he was kind of skinny and you know, he didn't really feel confident about himself. And then all of a sudden he was going to the gym, his body was filling out, his skin cleared up and he was like coming into his man. He was 19 years old. He'd never had a girlfriend. And he was going to a party and there was a girl there he had a crush on and he was nervous. And his friend told him, oh, I got a Xanax prescription. Take one bar of Xanax, cool you right down. You'll be, you know, you won't be high or anything. You wouldn't be high on one bar of Xanax and it'll take the edge off so you'll be cool. But he didn't have a prescription. It was a fake pill. As far as we know, first thing the kid ever took in his life. You know, there's just no indication of it. All his emails, texts. This is the archetype of what we defend. Everyone can relate to that kid. Everyone can relate to that kid. It's not a drug person addicted for 10 years and strung out and at the end of an eight year process died. It's not my daughter who was kind of crazy all over the place. This was just the, the most regular kid you could imagine. And you see, when we go out to do our talks, 
you have to, we're relating to those people because they're the people who are going to suffer this. The people in broken families with all kinds of violence and domestic violence and drug abuse, they're going to fall to addiction and at the end of addiction hit overdose. They've got all kinds of resources to help those people. Not that they're not valuable, they are, they just have, they already have a lot of resources. What is anyone in our country now, a full 10 years, because this started in 2013, very, very moment in time, based on the Chinese and their 100-year marathon, and you know, the whole thing, too, I can tell you the whole story, I know more about it than anybody. 10 years to, almost to the day now, since it started. Here we are 10 years later, who's doing anything to prevent Eddie Kobilis from dying the next time? Nothing, nobody, nothing, absolutely nothing. We're doing nothing. We're doing nothing to prevent that death, which is now, I'd argue, certainly more than half of the deaths, if not higher than that. I, I think overdoses probably dropped to less than half the deaths. And, and this killing by deception, poison deception, is probably now becoming the standard. So it's those people we need to relate to. But you see, and again, we can go through all this detail as we go into the advocacy part, but it comes back to that empathy factor again, right? So right off the bat, if you're an advocate and you're a bereaved parent, you got a little bit of a challenge anyway. There's a whole empathy problem there to begin with. And then the people I argue, the people who come to my talks, they're not coming to my talks to learn anything. You know what they're coming to my talks for? To find the escape hatch, why this won't affect them. That's what they're yes. coming for. Yes. They're coming to find what about me and my daughter makes it that it's not going to be me and my son. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a back door. They're not looking for an answer. No, absolutely. Everybody thinks it's the other person's problem. They don't think it could affect their family. So I teach my advocates, you are trying to elicit empathy. What is empathy? Empathy is the ability of a human being to understand the, the, the condition of another human being that they have not personally experienced. Fair? Is that a fair definition? Absolutely. I, I can rationalize what it's like for you, Mary, to be a woman, but I, I, I've never experienced being a woman, but I have empathy so I can understand particular woman struggles in the world, even though I never had, right? And vice versa for you, men. Now, my empathy is baked in. I have what I have through nature, nurture. I am what I am. I have my empathy level. And my ability to understand your suffering is a natural empathy level. So what I teach these people when they go out and do these presentations is you're trying to elicit that empathy. See, once I empathize with your situation, I can then turn around and put it into my situation. A person who's had an empathetic experience is changed permanently. Right? Once I come to understand, take something like racism, right? Once the average person starts to understand that the experience of a racially discriminated group is different than theirs and starts to be able to feel for their experience, that's when things like racism get fixed, right? Not until, because otherwise they're just aliens and I just keep suppressing, right? And in the same way, I'm here to get you to empathize and then you'll be different. You'll be on watch with your children. If I can't get to empathy and I give you your escape hatches, that's what I call them, right? When I tell you my daughter had a severe mental illness, you go, Phew! escape hatch, you're out of there. My daughter doesn't have mental illness. My son doesn't have mental illness. They're not going to die from this. Boom, gone. Yeah. Right? 
And what do they do when they go out the escape hatch? You know what they do? What do they throw me as they go? They throw me empathy's trash cousin called pity. They pity Ooh, me. Interesting how you said that. So out the escape pouch they go and they go, oh, by the way, here's some pity for you. I feel sorry for you, man. I'm praying for you. See you. Out yeah, back. I'm out of here. <laughs> when I do my talks, I am consciously closing down escape hatches. That's why I don't talk about my daughter. I've been offered 22 interviews on popular media, Fox News, CNN, NBC. And every single time I gave them the ground rules like I gave to you, 21 rescinded their invitation. <laughs> Ryan Kilmeade at Fox, good man that he is, he let me come on the air. Um, so I was on the Brian Kilmeade show, he's a good guy. Um, other than that, 22 invitations, 21 rescinded when they said, well, we want to hear about your daughter. Don't talk about me. <laughs> well, we, want, we want to hear your story my story doesn't mean anything to anybody what does anybody care I don't need you to feel sorry for me I want you to protect your child from getting killed I don't care what you think about me or my daughter you didn't know my daughter Shows her death doesn't mean anything to you I don't mean this to you personally, personally. no I understand <laughs> my, my daughter's death doesn't mean anything to any of you you didn't know her who cares Literally, who cares? What you should care about is what killed her can kill that kid who you do care a whole lot about. That's what I want. That's called empathy. And if I give them the escape hatch, they're out of there. I'm telling you, they don't come to my talks to hear how to protect their child. They come to my talks to convince themselves that I'm different than them and that they don't have to worry about this. You think they come to my talks to put more stress on their plate? No. They come to my talk to be let out of one of the stresses in life that my kid's threatened by this. This fentanyl thing I hear all the time. My kid's captain of the lacrosse team. Eh, I'm good. Nope. We just, I just, two weeks ago, kid in San Diego, wrestler, right? Follow the wrestlers, of course. The wrestler, he was on his way, big division three uh, prospect. He was a county champion in San Diego. Two weeks ago. Okay. That's a kid. That kid's not going to die of drug overdose. Kid couldn't have won his counties if he was an active addict. There's no way. It's too hard. So we know the kid wasn't an addict. We know the kid wasn't using chronically. I can tell you that from 3,000 miles away. He's dead. So that's the connective thing for me is this empathy factor. That's what I, I've lived my whole life analyzing empathy and trying to elicit empathy from people or use my empathy to sell, right? And so that's what I train the people. And it comes back again to understanding you know, kind of what we're experiencing and what we're feeling. And that's why the grief is so important to me. As I said at the, at the outset, the grief part to me, when I talk to other bereaved parents, that is cathartic. It means a lot to me. It does make me feel like there's purpose to all of this. There's some purpose to my daughter. It puts meaning to it. The other thing, it's just business for me. I just know a lot about it. You know, I know a lot about it. And, um, and I, I, you know, and, and so I, 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 I'd sort of be, um, you know, it would be wrong for me not to use that knowledge to try to help, right? And I, I completely appreciate all your time today because I mm -hmm. think this will really help people um, not only in the bereavement community based on their loved one dying of fentanyl, but in other, like you said, the compassionate friends, all kinds of bereaved parents who've lost children to 
you know, cancer and fentanyl and car accidents and any, uh-huh. any manner. Yeah. Any manner. And I'm sure they are so grateful that you give them such strength because the perspective that you have really is superior to the blame and the hurt and the vindictiveness and the, you know, just being so angry for decades and decades. And there's a place, there's a time where you have to get strong enough to say, I'm not living like this anymore. I'm just not going to live like this anymore. And I feel so badly for so many people that I've seen who want to play the victim for the rest of their lives. I'm a bereaved parent for the rest of my life. Yes, I understand that. Yes, we all know that. But are you going to live your life too? Like, how do you live your life while you're still grieving? I think that's a big thing. You know, know, it's not... Go ahead. I like to say you'll never have happiness again. You'll always be sad, but, but... If you say yes, there's a world of meaning will open to you, right? My dear friend, I have a friend named Tom Ryan, who's the um, head wrestling coach at the Ohio State University. He's, he's actually being inducted in October into the Hall of Fame at Ohio State. I mean, oh, how nice. It's amazing that this dear friend of mine is going to be in the, sa- in, in the same place as Jesse Owens and, 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 uh, uh, and, and Arnold Palmer, you know? And all. Wow. It's amazing, right? So... Woody Hayes. Um, anyway, he lost his five-year-old son to a congenital heart defect 17, 18 years ago now. Wow. And I did my kickoff meeting for my fentanyl awareness coach because we're coming all over the country in Columbus, Ohio. It was a good center point. And I do a lot of work in Ohio because that's where the crisis is really bad. And so we were in Columbus. So I asked Tom, who lives in Columbus, the Ohio State University, I asked him if he would come and address the group. He's one of us. And what he said to our group, and unfortunately, I didn't really prepare him for what it was, and he had to just kind of make this aspect. I mean, I was a little mixed up in how he got everything ready, and I didn't give him the pro- enough proper warning. So he had to come in and just sort of speak off the cuff. But he's pretty good. He's a great speaker. And um, and he's written this book called Chosen Suffering. For anybody who's suffering with their own bereavement and want to see about suffering life, he's a, he's a Christian. Christian and uh, he lost his child and he summed all that up many many years later in his book it's like he only put it out about two three years ago called chosen suffering by Tom Ryan if anybody wants to read that and um and so Tom came to our group and I had him speak to the group and and what he said to them the one message he wanted everybody to take from him was I don't know what to say about being happy or sad or my grief he said but I will say this I enjoy my life today as much as I did before my son died. Wow. I thought that was a beautiful way to say it. That's what you owe your son. That's what you owe your daughter. That's what you owe your bereaved child is to find that. That's what we owe them because we go on and they don't want us to be stuck. They don't want us to be sad. We go on and they want us to go on and they want us to go on with joy and meaning. Yes. Totally. They know, agree. We'll never, 
We'll never be, we'll never be happy at our new car again, but that's okay. We have joy. We have gratitude. I remember going through and I, I, I was explaining to a woman who was one of our uh, uh, compassionate friends who was 15 years or so into grief. And I said something when my wife and I got into the third year and I said, you just feel this great feeling gratitude. And he goes, ah, yes, you know, the old people, you know, the old, my, my elder brothers and sisters, the way they react, oh, yeah, she says, <laughs> third year, that's the year of gratitude. And um, it was. And our gratitude is just, is just overwhelming, right? And the other thing we have, right, Mary, is this capacity for love that we have. And maybe it's because... I've got a saint in heaven who's filling my heart all the time with my love for her, but I'm started since Amanda died, I've become, and I was always about Catholic my whole life. I was always a you know, pretty religious guy, but the love, which is the root of all of that, right? the root of all faith, our great, our great Pope Benedict said, Deus caritas est, right? That was his great book. God is love. That's, that's it. What else can you say? God is love. Right. So that root of it, that love maybe was still limited in me. But by saying yes, the love in my heart, it's so overwhelming that I try to give it where I can and I can't give it away because every time I give it, it comes back three times over. Right. And you just try to give it and you try to give it and you try to give it. Yeah. There's so much love in my heart. Of course, for my wife and my my surviving beautiful son Declan and my beautiful daughter-in-law Molly, I was at the wedding. I was just so overwhelmed with gratitude, right? And Amanda was there all day. I mean, she was right there with us. I know she was cheering her brother on, and she loves her <laughs> sister-in-law. I know she does. She was the first one to tell I me. Mean, I, you know, I gave a speech at my son's. I gave a little um, toast at my son's wedding. Right? A little, little brief speech. I, somebody had to mention Amanda, so I did. <laughs> and that so, would be you. <laughs> so, so I did. And um, and I said something. It's a true story. And it's a very Amanda thing to say, that when he first brought Molly home, when Declan first brought Molly home, she's, she's, she's the most beautiful child. She's absolutely beautiful, inside and out. And uh, I remember Amanda saying to her brother, that one, she's out of your league. No. <laughs> I said that at the wedding. Oh, you did? <laughs> That's what she said. That was the kind of thing Amanda would say. Whoa, Declan, she's out of your league. And uh, <laughs> we were so overwhelmed with gratitude for our beautiful daughter-in-law and our son and my wife. I, I feel such love. But for everyone, my friend Eddie, who's my partner in this family, I love the man so much. He's such a friend to me. And because we're we're like soldiers from combat, right? We're sharing this thing yeah. together, and um, and so that's you know that's it. It's, if you can say yes, and you can find that 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 deep deep well of love, it'll open to you, and it's so satisfying. And, it, and I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude. And we can all be there. We can, we can. Well, so. thank you, thank you so much, Michael, for spending the time with us today. I really appreciate it. I want to remind you about the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition, and I will put all the links in the show notes so that you can find him 
and you can listen to his different YouTube uh, videos, which are very profound. And we get to be together again. Yes. Second episode. (laughs) In the second episode, we're going to talk about all his advocacy work and how that's come together and how important it is for the world to understand that this is no joke. This is lethal. It just takes once. We can't experiment with drugs anymore. And we have to teach our children extremely young that this is an issue that could kill you. I'll tease you with one thing we'll talk about in that next meeting, in that next podcast, we'll talk about. You just said it for the second time now. And that is this recreational experimentation with drugs simply has to stop. It's over. There's no other choice. There's no other choice. Right. You know what I say sometimes in my talks, the way I say it, if there's kids in there, I'll say, look, you just can't do it. You know, like, I don't know what to tell you. Your big brothers and sisters can go into a frat party and snort, smoke, take, swallow anything they wanted. And worst thing they were going to get was a guilty punch and a bad hangover. You, you'll die. Why, why does that, why is that burden on you? I don't know. I, because it just is. You got iPads. They didn't. I don't know. You know, I mean, like. Right. But, right. So what you just said, and I'm going to bring to you what I think is the solution to this that's based in getting to what you said. You just said the ultimate answer. And like most great ultimate answers, it's very simple what you just said, but very difficult to get there. Yeah. I have things to get there. And I'll share that with you. That would be great. So thank you again, Michael. And to all my listeners and viewers. Um, I am so grateful to this man for being here, taking the time. And I want you to remember to take everything that he talks about to heart. It's really important, no matter what age you are. And for all those parents who think it'll never happen to them, I want you to be aware. I want you to study this. And I want you to have conversations with your children, no matter how hard they may be. But right now I ask for you to subscribe to this channel, um, to like, to make comments, to rate it, um, wherever you are, wherever you hear us, please be engaged. So we love you and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye now.